this thing, because I'm going to try to look at you all the whole time, and then I'll be able to see. It's going to drive me crazy. Okay, sorry for that. This is our uh, first day in our Summer Psalm series, and uh, we actually had a, a good bit of fun picking these psalms, so if it seems uh, at random, it uh, at least is uh, to us, we kind of cut it all up. I drew them up, put them all on a piece of paper, cut them up, put them in a cup, and we all just drew from the cup to see what order we'd be preaching and from where we would be preaching, and uh, and good news is it's only going to take us uh, 10 years to get us through the entire book of Psalms. So uh, I hope you and I are all still here uh, at that time. But uh, So if you're wondering why Psalm 129 for our first psalm of this summer, that's why. Uh, we, allow, we picked lots and God chose it, so it must be super holy uh, for that. But yeah, we, we uh, spent a few weeks going through the mission and the vision of the church. And uh, I guess it's tradition now. You all have been here longer than I have, so you'd know better than me. But uh, as we kind of shift into cruise control for the summer and people kind of pop in and out, and this allows you to uh, not miss something too, too important if we're moving through a series. And, but as I was thinking this week about this psalm, I was reminded by this old uh, Planet Fitness commercial. And I know... Uh, Unfortunately, we, we don't have one in town because it's only 10 bucks a month for 24-hour access. Uh, one of these commercials, uh, you know, because it's got to be funny since millennials are starting to take over the marketplace, like you, you, you have to keep our short attention spans. And, and so this commercial, as it goes, is uh, this young man working there goes to open the front door and one of these big buff dudes walks in and he has to turn sideways to get through the door. It's like, hey, welcome, welcome. What do you, uh, we'd love to sign you up. What do you do for work? And, and uh, I'm, I don't want to butcher it. I'll, I won't do it. In, the, in his Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, he says, I pick things up and I put things down. He says, okay. And he will over here, then you'd like our, our weight racks and our free weights. And he goes, I, yeah, I pick things up and put things down. Okay. Uh, well, here's where we do the cardio, and well, it seems like the meathead truly is just a meathead because all he knows how to do is pick things up and put things down, right? And eventually, he, he goes to the back door into the back parking lot, and he goes, well, here's where we do our stretches, and out he goes, I pick things up and put things down. I pick things up and put things down. And I don't know if that worked on us millennials, but it, it sure made me chuckle. But I still don't go to the gym, so it didn't work. How about that? <laughs> but I think that, in all, all of its silliness, will help us as we frame our minds to look at Psalm 129. Because indeed, it is God who picks things up and he puts other things down. Over the entire narrative of Scripture, that is what God is doing lifting up and putting down. Individual books, he lifts up and he puts down. And as I hope I can point out, he, indeed he did it with Jesus himself on our behalf. He put down Jesus and lifted him up again to save our souls. And as we go through Psalm 129, I, I'm hoping that can, we can phrase and look through that lens as we look through this and, and hope that it helps us. But before we get into it, let me pray for this, and we'll, uh, we'll get in. Lord, again, we come before you. We bow before your throne. 
as a congregation this summer morning and ask you would enlighten us in our souls, that we would understand your word, that you would protect and guard my mouth, that you guide my feet in this, this passage, and you would help us understand and seek, and we would want to seek your truth in this, Lord. I thank you for everyone who made it this morning. I want to ask you to help with all the problems that we are dealing with, that we would just lay those at your feet. Get them off our backs. Put them at your feet, Lord. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in this uh, first psalm, and you'll see when we get it up on the screen, uh, it's titled A Song of Ascent. And all that simply means for some context is that some of the Jewish festivals where the, all of the Hebrew people would come from all over in pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this festival. And the way that Jerusalem is situated, it's always called the city on a hill, right? And you would literally, physically have to walk uphill, up the road to the main gate to get into Jerusalem. And a part of this tradition, it, it went that these Hebrews, these Israelites, would sing these psalms of ascent in their group. As they were marching together towards their festival in Jerusalem, they would sing these certain psalms. But in an interesting mix of genre, not only is it a psalm of ascent, it is also an imprecatory psalm which is quite interesting to me. One of the theologians uh, I studied defined an imprecatory psalm simply as uh, where a psalmist requests that God bring judgment upon his adversaries. So right off the bat, I'm sure you're kind of uh, wondering, well, why in the world would the Israelites, in celebration and rem remembering the Lord and what they've do he's done for them, sing an imprecatory psalm? I, I wondered that. And maybe you'll, you'll understand when we, uh, start, we read this passage here, that as uh, us in a semi-comfortable age, when we're not dealing with quite too much affliction yet, how would this Psalm 129 affect us here? So let's read that together again. Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say together, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. My first point uh, today for this passage is that affliction for the Lord's people is nothing new. It's nothing new for the church. And there's nothing new that could happen to the church today that hadn't happened at some point throughout its long history. So read that one, one through three with me again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say all together, 
Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. And if you think about that for a moment, who, who is saying this? Right? God's chosen people, God's elect is writing this psalm and then later on using it in, on, as they ascend towards Jerusalem for their festivals. They write something. God's people, his loved ones, that they have afflicted me from my youth. John Calvin, uh, old dead theologian, he wrote that in that context, from my youth, that Hebrew phrase is from my beginning, from my inception as a people, they have afflicted me. And it's described in Exodus 1. We can go there. It should be up on the screen. Exodus 1, 8 through 6, we think about, well, what do you mean from your inception as a group? So we find the, uh, the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, in Egypt. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom uh, was named Shifra, and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. And yes, we know that God chose Abraham out of the Gentiles long ago to be a father of the Hebrews, but that at that time, they were not this massive group with a group identity as the Israelites. So in this, this sense, they were absolutely birthed out of this slavery, this affliction. Because later in Exodus 2.23, Moses wrote, during those many days, the, as they were being slaves and afflicted, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their, their cry for the rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And of course, this was not the last time the Israelites knew affliction. Sometimes, Oftentimes, the affliction came from within the camp, their own mistakes that brought punishment, and other times it came from without. But there in Exodus, that what we just read, we get a picture of, of why the psalmist in chapter 129 would use such imagery of, greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, and the plowers plowed upon my back and made long their furrows. From the very beginning, they were persecuted and afflicted. And it was so nasty and evil evil that it was just as though plowers 
made furrows. And what is that? We don't really use that language anymore, unless you're uh, Ryan Meadow, I suppose. He's not here, so I can pick on him. Furrows, that's when planting crops in hard soil, the farmer would hook up his oxen to this little plow, and he'd take that thing across the field back and forth, dragging, plowing in long trenches, whether he was going to move water and irrigate uh, fields by these trenches or take, put a trench in and plant seeds and cover it back up. It was hard work. And that is the language that this psalm, psalmist used to communicate this complete evil done to them. It was as if he's saying, God, they laid us down and they put an oxen up onto a plow and they just raked it up and down our backs completely. They just dug trenches in back and forth. You could read through the history of the books of the Old Testament and time and time again were the Hebrews abused. And back to John Calvin, he seems to think that's probably the context that this psalm was written in. They, they were feeling that in that moment, even though we don't know exactly when it was written. But if you notice there, even though he brings up such imagery, he doesn't end that first section with that. He doesn't say, oh Lord, we were abused, but then you forgot about us. Oh Lord, we were raked across with a plow but you must have been in the back room and not, couldn't hear our cries. No. He writes in verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Here the psalmist is referring to the cords that would connect that oxen to the plow. He almost switches in the imagery that he uses. He now says that we were like the slaves pulling the plow, that were raking the furrows upon our backs. But the Lord came and cut those cords. Lord, you were the one who rescued us from the affliction. You were the one who saved us. That ancient church, he was just waiting for repentance time and time again to go and save them. And that part of the church, that old church, they're not the only people who have felt affliction, have they? Today, 2022, all of us have had a share of suffering and affliction and abuses, whether it's in our past, maybe our present. If it's not there, it's certainly coming in our future. Suffering will not leave us untouched. But the Lord is righteous, as the psalmist writes. God is righteous. Theologian named John Frame, that we mentioned here uh, quite a bit, he wrote about God's righteousness as the main idea of divine righteousness is that God acts according to a perfect internal standard of right and wrong. All his actions are with, within the limits of that standard of right and wrong. So God's righteousness is the form of his goodness, and his goodness is the concrete, active embodiment of his righteousness. These two things, goodness and righteousness that go together, is that he has a perfect standard of right and wrong. And so I asked before, why in the world 
would the Israelites in their pilgrimages to Jerusalem be singing a song together? Could you imagine that? Okay, this big group of people, and a couple of them have tambourines, and a couple of them have a drum, and they're all singing, and they all go by, and you go, oh, hey, hey, this is my favorite song. Listen, wait, listen to the lyrics here. Yeah, this is the one where uh, the bad guys used a plow on our backs when we were slaves. This is my favorite. Right? Why would they sing this? Well, I think it would be because they needed to be reminded in the midst of the corporate whole body of Israel and individually that their God is a righteous God who saves, who, don't, who doesn't leave us in our afflictions, who doesn't leave us in our slavery to others or to sin. That as Dr. Frame put it, that every single action of God, because of God's attributes, his essential parts of his being, are perfect without a shadow of a doubt. That God is perfect. He's righteous, and everything that he's laid out for his people, and everything that he does is the supreme good of everything. And from, from that perfectness, from that righteousness, poured out his salvation for his people. That, of course, is through Jesus Christ. But he found us where? He found us in our own afflictions that we are doing to ourselves. As we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, you and I, walked in the, and lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so whatever afflictions we did face just before we were Christians, whatever happened to us, in our lives, none of them were worse than our own afflictions we did to ourselves through sin. You think every day before we were saved, all we were doing was like carrying a big hiking backpack and picking up more sin and stuffing it in there and putting more weight upon our back as we march away from heaven. It says we hated God. I think we did because we, we knew God existed. We knew his requirements for salvation. We knew, by, uh, that's Romans 1, right? By rejection of that offer of salvation, we hated him, just as Satan does. But it was in that self-affliction of sin, in that, in the midst of it, where Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 8, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved. For grace you were not left alone in your own self-affliction. Because of God's righteousness and the pinnacle of his righteousness, Jesus was sent on your behalf to save you from the grave that you were digging. I mean, that is grace. 
So of us being after Christ's first coming, that's why we should be singing and praying this psalm with joy and excitement. I don't know if you do this as a part of uh, any devotional, devotionals you do. Uh, I am hit or miss. I try to. I'm just bad at it. Spiritual disciplines. But as we, you pray through uh, the Psalms, uh, praying through Scripture is a really helpful way to do that. And that's what reminded me of that this, uh, today, this self-affliction. As is, is you would pray through, how would you do that in 129? Say, oh God, the plowers plowed upon my back and they made long their furrows. Now we did that to ourselves before Christ came into our hearts. We did that to ourselves. But thanks to God's graciousness and righteousness that he saved us until we uh, ascend to heaven one day in glory. And I think that is why the Israelites sang this walking to Jerusalem, that they would be reminded of the ways that God has saved them from all their afflictions, even though it seems depressing. It's a great reminder. My second point is just from the second half of this passage, verses 5 through 8. It's the fun parts, the imprecatory part where we start calling... Uh, calling curses down upon our enemies. I know uh, we, we probably like to do that as good, good rural people. We love calling some curses down. Let me read this. Read this with me. Verse 5 through 8. May all who hate Zion be put to shame, the city of God that represents God himself. All who hate God be put to shame and be turned backward that military sent, like two armies meeting in the middle and one turning the other way and routing them the opposite direction, saying, let all those who hate God be put to shame and put turned backwards just like a failing army. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Back then when they'd be building houses, they'd use wood and timber and they'd, they'd structure their roof with uh, more wood or sticks, and then they would pack clay in it to keep the water out. And if it did rain, whatever grass seed was there would sprout up quickly in the morning. And then as soon as that summer scorching hot sun came out, it would wither. He's saying, the enemies of God be like that grass, that it wouldn't survive the day which the reaper does not fill up his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, and this is in context, those who would be saying about those enemies. Let no one say this about God's enemies, that the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Boy, that's, that's a little strange, right? To Christian ears. I know in my heart, as a backcountry, uh, raised in a, a fighting family who loved to go to the bars and fight, that probably sounds real good to them. That'd probably bring them to church if we just stuck in an imprecatory psalm. Uh, uh, maybe next summer, we'll just stick in the imprecatory psalm. My family would all come. It'd be weird. It sounds strange. 
but you can pray this. And you can, it's biblical, it's right here, right? Even though we're told to be peaceful and loving, we can pray this against our enemies. That he would cut them down before they could do any more damage to this world or to his church. And, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And let, make me, uh, I'm going to answer that. Like why that's the case very quickly. Because yes, it's true that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29, do not resist anyone who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to him the, the other also. And earlier in uh, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, we have them back on the wall. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no love, uh, no law. Well, how can we pray in precatory psalms against God's enemies then? Well, that's because you're not God, right? Sometimes we have to be reminded that we're not God. We're not perfect as God is perfect. We don't own anything on this planet because it's not our own creation. We're not in a position to destroy evil the way God is. It's because we're not righteous to our core, like God is righteous to his core. That he can do nothing but good. That is why we as Christians are able to call on God to destroy his enemies. Because it is his creation that he gets to do with what he pleases with. Because God is perfect. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who lifts things up and he puts things down. But we should remember in the context of Psalm 129 and the Hebrews using this psalm in memory as they ascended into Jerusalem. He's like, what grand and great historical event would they be thinking about in that time? What happened in their youth? At, at, at their birth, as it were, that would have caused them to have such confidence that their God would indeed strike down the enemy before them. That they knew if they called on their Lord for protection from affliction, that he would come to their rescue. Well, let's go back to Exodus as we begin to wrap up. And I think we'll, we've got it on screen because it's going to be quite a, a long one. But here we find ourselves uh, just after the Moses event, just after he comes back and the 10 plagues have already happened. And then Israel begins to leave Egypt as one large group. Their birth as in their youth here. Exodus 14, 1 through 28. Stick with me now just so we get the whole context. And then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zavon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of 
Pharaoh and his servants uh, were changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And they took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Right? This is that famous story right, that we've all heard from our childhood. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters began a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down upon Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Well, that's why Israel, this ancient church, could sing with such boldness in their ascent to Jerusalem. They knew that their God destroys the enemy. They knew that he is righteous and does not forget about his people. Did you catch what Moses said in verse 13? Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
So I go back again to my question. Why would Israel sing an imprecatory psalm in celebration, marching up to the, the God, godly city of Jerusalem? Because it reminded them of this event. Because it reminded them that they are God's people, never to be forgotten, never to be left in their affliction. But do you realize that these are your events as well as the church? That is the spiritual descendants of these people that God saved your people there before the Egyptians. Does that matter to us at all? Because he saves us from our enemy, just like them. Just like them. Well, where did that happen? Where did God bind the enemy, capture him, and subdue him, so that the church age could explode? And that happened, uh, of course, in the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4. That is where... Satan is bound as it claims in Revelation 20. That is why, just like the Hebrews in this imprecatory psalm, we can call on God to crush the enemy, not just bad neighbors or Russia or whatever else is happening. We can call on God through the psalm to crush the enemy, Satan and to continue to ruin his claim on this world and those who do not believe. We can pray and beg God to root out any remaining claim that the evil one would pretend to have in this world. That God would save souls from his grasp. That is what the church can pray this psalm about. But I don't know, what is, I don't know if that matters to you. How should that affect us today as we go in and out of lives and we go home from here and we get our, our free day from work tomorrow, why does it matter to us? What does it do for us? This knowledge of this Psalm 129, I think it should give us confidence. In, not just confidence, in un shakenness that this word creates in us a backbone unbreakable knowing that God is the God through all of history who continues to save his people who will not leave you in darkness who changes the lives that the evil one would destroy yeah, God's going to destroy evil one day. He'll crush it, toss it into the fire. All this evil that CNN and Fox News love to shove down our throats because it makes them money all day. They use the tone that keeps, you, keeps freaking you out so you come back. They use the big red bold letters, breaking news, even though it's the same news that's been out for the last 10 days. It's still breaking All that evil that they can report on that happens in the world and just crushes us, it's all going to put, be put to rest when Jesus comes again. 
So when you read these imprecatory psalms in the Bible or when we're thinking about all the evil in the world, we need to remind ourselves that our God is perfect. You know, he's righteous. Like there's not, there's not a shadow of anything in his soul. And all that builds, all who he is, there's not a shadow or a crack in the wall that is God. I mean, he's perfect in every single way. He knows every need. He knows why every tear is shed. He knows when our homes are scary and frightening and all we want out, uh, all we want is out of the situation, right? In those darkest moments of our lives, we have a righteous God who cuts the cords of the bad. We have a righteous God who just walks around like Ed, Edward Scissor's hands. Boom, boom, boom. He does not leave you in your affliction. He will never leave you in your affliction. And of course, he did this all through Jesus on the cross. He did it all. All of his righteousness, the pinnacle, like when the, the dam breaks open and the floodwaters just pour out, like his righteousness being poured out through Christ. All of it showed us perfectly, this God-man who came and died for us, showed us perfectly every way to think and live in gentleness and humility. He is the righteousness that was put down and lifted up on our behalf. And he is the great one that has delivered us from evil inside and out, just as God did with the Israelites that Psalm 129 sings about. Upon him, that's where this psalm is fulfilled. And now we get to sing in all glories and all thankfulness Whatever righteousness that he's given us, we get to now sing and praise and worship because of what he did on the cross. That is our hope for all eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I thank you, at least. I know we do. We thank you for being the same God that you were back then when the psalm was penned and back when you saved the Israelites from Egypt. And uh, I can't imagine uh, what someone would have to feel to, to say that it's like uh, furrows being plowed in their backs, the affliction. But uh, that psalm writer still found it in himself to worship you and glorify you as the Lord that is righteous and uh, help us do the same. Wherever you're finding us this morning, if it's uh, suffering under abuse, if it's, if it's just suffering under exhaustion, if it's uh, any affliction that we're feeling, if it's affliction that is being brought on by our own choices and our own sins, that we would simply come to you at the cross, to you to cut the cords. <coughs> We'd not rely on our own strength any longer, but we would come to you the Savior. And we thank you and we, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.